You can turn in your Bibles with me to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. On Friday morning, just two days ago, or I should say Friday evening, uh, I ran across this article from Cape Cod. Said a little before 8 a.m. on Friday, the same Friday, veteran lobster diver Michael Packard entered the water for his second dive of the day. Uh, which it's 8 a.m. and he's on his second dive of the day. That's um, an early start, I suppose, for lobster divers. Uh, his vessel, and I'm going to get this name wrong, the, the Ja'an J was off Herring Cove Beach and surrounded by a fleet of boats catching striped bass. The water temperature was a balmy 60 degrees and the visibility about 20 feet. Licensed commercial lobster divers literally pluck lobsters off the sandy bottom, and as Packard, 56, dove down Friday morning, he saw schools of sand lances and stripers swimming by. The ocean food chain was in full evidence, but about 10 feet from the bottom, Packard suddenly knew what it truly felt like to be part of that chain. In something truly biblical, Packard was swallowed whole by a humpback whale. I was completely inside. It was completely black, Packard said. I thought to myself, there's no way I'm getting out of here. I'm done. I'm dead. All I could think of was my boys. Outfitted with scuba gear, he struggled, and the whale began shaking its head so that Packard could tell he didn't like it. He estimated he was in the whale for 30 to 40 seconds before the whale finally surfaced. He says, I saw light, and he started throwing his head side to side, and the next thing I knew, I was outside in the water. Uh, that's a wild story. Uh, it's a little bit of a misnomer. He wasn't actually swallowed. He got caught in the whale's mouth. But, uh, of course, the, the parallels to the book of Jonah are uncanny. Uh, even, it, and it's, a, it's evidence that the, the story of Jonah is really so well known in our, our entire culture that a, a secular news article can reference something truly biblical. Uh, and yet, here's, here's the catch with the book of Jonah. Uh, we might not really remember what Jonah is about. Because it's not really about the, the whale or the fish swallowing Jonah. It's not even really about uh, Jonah himself. Uh, it's not about Nineveh, who converts to, to worship God. But the book of Jonah is, first and foremost, about God himself. It's, and, and unlike most of the prophetic books that we have uh, in the Old Testament, the focus is not so much on what Jonah says, but it's about the history of Jonah and his life and what that teaches us about God. Specifically, what Jonah is teaching us is what it means and what it looks like for God to show mercy to sinners. And so that's going to be the, the emphasis of the book as we um, as I get to preach a, f a few times throughout the summer and as we get to, to read through the, the whole book of Jonah. Uh, but as for now, I'm going to read Jonah chapter 1. Uh, and before I do that, I'm going to pray for us. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the chance to come to your word and to hear from it. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that you show to sinners, uh, namely us. We thank you for your grace and mercy to us by instructing us in your word. And so we pray that as we come to it, you would uh, use your spirit and, and work through it 
Um, and we pray that it would give us wisdom. It would give us a, a fresh picture of who you are. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Amen. <clears throat> Uh, now, it would be really easy to boil down Jonah chapter 1 uh, to the lesson, don't be like Jonah. Uh, but I think that's kind of selling this chapter a little bit short. Really, it's an introduction to who God is, uh, revolving really around this whole language of, of fear. Who are these people fearing? Who, are, who is Jonah fearing? Who are, the, who are what are the sailors fearing? Who do they worship? Uh, how do you know who they fear and they worship? And so as we look at Jonah and the sailors, uh, what they're doing, what they're saying in this chapter, we're going to see what it really means to fear, uh, to worship, to glorify our God. And so, namely, that comes out in, in, in two different ways. Uh, if you do truly fear the Lord, it begins with the right confession, uh, but it continues with the right fruit. So those are the two points we're going to look at, the, the right confession and the right fruit. 
Uh, So the right confession that shows that we fear the Lord. Uh, Look at verse 9 with me. We'll start right in the middle of the story. Uh, What is it that Jonah tells us explicitly about God in this chapter? In verse 9, just as Jonah is caught, what does he say? I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Uh, Now, this is, I mean, baseline, foundational uh, to what we believe and what we know about God, that he is the God of heaven, and he is the creator of all things. Uh, Jonah's not just inventing this on the spot. In all likelihood, he he knows the Psalms pretty well, uh, especially if we go to look at Jonah 2 next time. But Psalm 95, for instance, says, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Uh, it, it, it really reminded me of that, that children's song we sing. Um, I was in the, the, hanging out in the nursery a couple weeks ago. Uh, the mountains are his, the rivers are his, his, the stars are his handiwork too. Uh, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. Uh, a fantastic song to be singing to our children and, and incredibly, incredibly deep in what it's teaching us. That God is the creator of all things. Uh, But it's not just that he's created it, uh, because I'm also certain that Jonah knew Psalm 139. If God is the creator, then this is also true. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame is not hidden from you. You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. God is not just the creator of all things, but he is present throughout all of his creation. The heights, the depths, the farthest reaches of the earth, darkness, uh, your own thoughts and your own mind, God is there and he is present. And so the, the, this, this big picture we're getting of God so far from Jonah is that there is creation, and then there's God. God is, is outside of and above everything that we can see and touch and hear and smell and, and all things visible and all things invisible. He is totally different than everything else. There is no one and there is nothing that is higher than him. Uh, and so we, we get just, just a little picture of this even in, in verse 4. It says, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. It's just a great image of God uh, standing high and above his earth and his creation and, 
and, and tossing this monstrous storm down onto the earth. And these were experienced sailors. Uh, there's good reason to think, I mean, they were terrified when they faced this storm. They, they could tell it was a supernatural storm. Uh, and for God, it's nothing. He's just hurling it down onto the earth. And so as, as well, when the sailors start questioning Jonah, they ask all these kind of strange, strange questions to our ears. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? They're really trying to get at their, what God is it that you're serving? Where do you come from? Wh- which God is it that you serve? Is it the God of, of Moab? Is it the God of the, the farmers? Uh, the God of the rivers? Uh, and when Jonah responds, that he worships and fears the creator God. He's saying, I'm the, I'm the wor- fearer and worshiper of the God who is creator of all of it. God is not this, this localized um, supermarket off-brand deity that these sailors worship. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. Uh, now, in terms of... Uh, this chapter's just literary structure. Verse 9 is sort of a hinge for the whole book. Because before we hear Jonah's confession, it's before that it, it's nothing but Jonah's disobedience, confusion, what's going on, chaos, storms, who knows what. And from this point onward, it's, it's obedience, clarity, understanding, uh, and returning to some form of normalcy. And so coming face to face with this, with this creator God is, is the hinge uh, for this, this whole chapter. And when the sailors hear about it, they, they, they finally know who they're dealing with. Um, and one commentator put it like this, they, they finally know that they've, they're tied up with somebody who is called lightning down to strike them dead. They know who they're dealing with. So that's Jonah's confession of who God is. Uh, the sailors also make a confession about who God is. Uh, that comes in verse 14. As they cry out to the Lord, they say, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And, and this is something that the sailors have ex- experienced now, face to face, firsthand, not not grown up being taught it, not growing up reading it from the scriptures, uh, but they know that this God that Jonah fears is the one who does exactly as he pleases. And everything that he wishes to do, he does. And so really, if, if what Jonah said was true about God, if he, if he really is the creator, and he really is in this category all by himself, uh, then he must be sovereign. And it must necessarily be that he does as he chooses. When the Lord has willed something to happen, it, it must happen. And so the, the variety of ways we see it in, in Jonah is that he is willed that Nineveh is going to hear the gospel. He has willed that Jonah is going to be the one to go preach to them. Uh, he has willed that Jonah is going to be thrown overboard 
eventually. And all of these things are going to happen, regardless of, of who does what to try and thwart it. And also, nothing that does actually happen is ever apart from his own choosing. Because how could it be? Our God is king. He is ab- above and outside of creation and, and rules over it with his sovereign hand. Uh, it's interesting also to see in verse 6, when the captain finds Jonah sleeping, he's got this, this very carefully worded uh, statement to Jonah. He, he calls him out for sleeping. He says, Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, now I think he's, he's probably speaking a lot better than he knows in, in that instant. Uh, but what he's saying there is that, that God is, is free to do as he pleases. Perhaps the God will, will give a thought to us. God is not somebody who can be manipulated. Uh, he, he, he's not a genie that we just rub the lamp and make a wish. He's not a, a vending machine where if we just push the right buttons, A6 or B7, or whatever, we'll, we'll get exactly what we want. Uh, in fact, this is something that, that sets God apart from all of the idols and the false gods throughout the Old Testament. And it's, I think, one of the biggest draws for Israel actually to keep going back to Baal and the false gods over and over again. And it's one of the draws for us as well, the, the temptations, I should say, to worship our own false idols and false gods because all of those gods promise something like a vending machine. As long as I follow steps A, B, and C, X, Y, Z, and push the right buttons, I know I'm going to get exactly what I want. I know I'll have the, the full crops this summer. I know I'm going to prosper in my job and get that promotion. And that's not God. Yeah, he... He's a gracious God. He, he loves to give us good things as our Father. But he's not a magic genie. And so whether it's the, the lots being cast and, and coincidentally landing on Jonah, uh, whether God is, is choosing to, to dole out his justice upon Jonah in this boat, or whether he is showing patience and, and giving grace, uh, and, and proclaiming the message of, of salvation to other people, uh, to, to whichever person or group or nation that he chooses, he is free to do whatever he pleases. Uh, and again, we're going to see that in a lot of different ways, but the, the main way in Jonah we're going to see that is when Jonah confesses at the end of Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's really the theme of this book. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If God has chosen to save someone and show them his grace and mercy, they will be saved and they will hear it. And we cannot say otherwise. God is a gracious and merciful God to all sorts of people. And so I have to say that when I... um, read these things about God in Jonah 1, I feel very small. Um, I tremble when I think about this God hurling a storm onto the sea. Um, And you know what? I think that's exactly where God wants us. 
Because uh, even in, in Psalm 95 that I, that I read earlier, the rest of that psalm says, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Uh, let us even let us not harden our hearts, but, but listen to him because he is our God and, and we are the sheep of his pasture. Uh, we can't lose sight of this fact that, that this, this book has a lot of fantastical things going on, but the main character and the main storyline is to see who God is. And he is a great God, the creator king, uh, who we're called to worship and to serve and to glorify in every circumstance, no matter the costs. If we're going to try to try to give our lives away to, to some other God or to some other passion or desire, if we're going to try to, to rule over our own lives and, and choose for ourselves what we're going to worship and how we're going to live, uh, it's, it's a futile way of living. And that's something that, that Jonah has clearly lost sight of in this book. He's gone to rule over his own life, and he has forgotten who this creator king is. And so he runs. Uh, which really leads right into to the second point. Uh, the, to truly fear the Lord, it, it doesn't just manifest in a, a right confession, but, but it continues on to bearing the right fruit. So what's Jonah going to do with all this information that he knows about God? Uh, he is, is clearly somebody who is, who is blessed uh, richly, tremendously. Uh, he's had lots of privileges in his life, spiritually speaking. Uh, some people actually have, have speculated that maybe Elijah is, is uh, along the lines of the, the school of prophets that Elijah and Elisha had in the Old Testament. Perhaps he's grown up, sort of maybe even training to be a prophet like this, who knows? Uh, he clearly speaks with God. He is called by God. And yet when he claims in verse 9 to, to fear the Lord, that just rings a little hollow, doesn't it? Based on everything that he's done so far in chapter 1. Does he really fear the Lord? When God calls him early on in, in verse 2 to, to arise and to go and to preach, he arises and flees. Um, and if you had a, a map in the back of your Bible, you'll see that he's fleeing in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. It's like being called in Fenton to go to New York City, and instead he flees to San Diego, uh, and then he gets on a ship to go to Hawaii to get as far away as he possibly can from the city he's called to go to. Uh, he is, poetically, he, he's going down, down, down. So he went down to, to Joppa to find a ship. He went down into the ship. He went down into the inner parts of the ship until we see in chapter 2, he's, he goes all the way down to the bottom of the ocean. And he's trapped by its bars. Um, even when he gets caught on the ship in the middle of a storm, we, we don't see him crying out to the Lord. Uh, we don't see him doing those things. How, how does something like this happen to a man like Jonah, who is so tremendously blessed? 
Uh, For one, he ignores the word of God to him. And, And it's not that he had a hard time trying to figure out what God wanted. It wasn't this intellectual difficulty, but he just didn't want to do it. It was a moral choice. And he ends up running away from the presence of the Lord. That's another phrase that gets repeated in this chapter, that he runs from the presence of the Lord. Uh, now, clearly, if Jonah knows Psalm 139, he, he knows there's really no way he can truly be away from the Lord. Uh, and so probably the way he's running away from the presence of the Lord is in the sense that he's running away from the, the felt presence of the Lord. He's running away from the place where he is called to serve. He's running away from the the place where he'll need to pray quite a bit. He's running away from the place of evangelism, running away from the place of obedience. He's trying to to get away from the place that he knows he's going to feel the presence of the Lord in Nineveh, on the way to Nineveh. And why does he do this? This is something uh, we need to be clear about really at the beginning of Jonah because Jonah tips us off all the way and at the end of the book in chapter 4, verse 2, why does he not go? Um, he says in 4, verse 2, that's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Uh, meaning Jonah was not afraid to go to Nineveh for his own life. He wasn't scared. He just hated Nineveh. And he knew that God was going to be gracious and turn their hearts and save them, and he didn't want to be a part of that. It's just a, it's a wild thing for the prophet of God to say. And we can kind of understand it because Nineveh was a horrible city. It was the capital of a a horrible, horrible country, a brutal country that would would perform the Old Testament version of crucifying people by by putting them on stakes in the ground. Just a, a horrible, hated enemy. And so we can understand why Jonah would would not want to go there so it's really almost as if God is, is very intentionally exposing this nerve for Jonah. He knows that Jonah wouldn't want to go there. And so that's exactly where he's calling him. Uh, which is a, a good warning for all of us when we, we confess that, that we want to serve God no matter what. Uh, I was going through this graduating seminary and, and praying and then trying to come to grips with, Lord, send me wherever you want me to go. Uh, many times, it's not where you want to go, and you're just called to obey. So Jonah is called to go exactly where he doesn't want to go, and Jonah refuses to do it. Uh, one, of, one of the hymns that we sing, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go, has the line, I lay in dust, life's glory dead. And Jonah doesn't want to lay in dust his own life's glory dead. He won't submit to God. And, and I'm sure that's something we can all relate to. Very many times, it's, it's not that we don't know what God wants us to do. 
It's that we know and we just don't want to do it. Right? Making uh, reconciliation with people we've, we've fought with maybe. Uh, speaking on the Jonah theme. Speaking to maybe our neighbor or our family member about the gospel who doesn't believe. And uh, we know we should. And we know we, uh, we know we're called to. And yet we don't want to be the weirdo, I suppose. We don't want to break that relationship or risk that relationship or risk our own reputation. Uh, we, we often have that, that Jonah syndrome where we, we don't like to lay in dust life's glory dead. And so what, hap- what, what ends up happening to Jonah, really he, he runs right into his own judgments by running onto this ship. Um, and verse 10 is actually a, a very apt summary. Just as Jonah confesses in verse 9, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Verse 10, all the sailors say, what is this that you have done? It's the perfect response and a, and a, a great summary for this chapter from, from man's perspective. What have you done? You've run away from your creator, king, God? You've disobeyed him? Why would you do that? And so then as the, the, the sailors encounter the Lord, um, what is it that they, they live out? What's the fruit that they bear after they encounter the Lord and experience him? Uh, lots of different things. Uh, just to name a couple, in verse 14, after every one of those sailors has gotten done crying out to their own God, verse 14, they actually all cry out to the one true God that Jonah serves. Uh, they are in that prayer. Uh, they confess they do not want to be held accountable to this God for what may happen to Jonah if they throw him overboard. Uh, they don't want to face this God's justice. Uh, and then it's very interesting to see verse 16, the story after Jonah is thrown into the sea, the story really lingers on the sailors for one verse, which, which is totally unnecessary. Didn't need to do that, but we see what happens to the sailors. They fear the Lord exceedingly, and they offer a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Uh, if, you've, if you've tracked sort of the, the word fear throughout this, uh, this chapter, in verse 5, it said that the, the mariners were afraid. And then in verse 10, it said that the men were exceedingly afraid. Uh, really a, a fantastic phrase uh, in the Hebrew. The men feared with a great fear. And then in verse 16, the men feared with a great fear, the Lord. They experience this God's power, and they fear him. It's, a, a lot of the, the commentators seem to agree, it's likely that these men probably weren't truly converted by the end of this, this experience. Um, perhaps they just added the Lord into their, their you know, pantheon of gods or whatever, but but they do see this God as one to be respected and one to be revered, uh, one to, to sacrifice sacrifices to. 
And so all of these sailors on the boat, they're really the, the first example in this book of God showing his grace to sinners. God showing his grace to, to really the people that, that we wouldn't expect. And so they're, they're the first example of, of God's grace and his salvation being his prerogative to give. Uh, even as Jonah is, is fleeing and disobeying the Lord, he uses that as an opportunity to extend his mercy to a group of, of undeserving, polytheistic, you know, multiple God-serving sinners and to show them who he is. And really, the, these sailors end up actually in the same exact position as the disciples from Mark 4. Mark 4 is, is really uncanny in the way that it parallels Jonah chapter 1. It says at the end, it actually in the Greek, the disciples feared with a great fear, just like the sailors. And so both the sailors and the disciples, at the end of these, these tremendous experiences, what they come to recognize is this, this vast gulf between the, the creator king, redeemer, and themselves as the creatures. And for us, as we, as we come to Mark 4, as, as Pastor Mark said, it shows us that God, or that Jesus, is the Lord. Jesus is to be feared and worshipped. And when we submit ourselves to Jesus... That, that gospel call puts a heavy burden on us to worship and to glorify him alone above all else. And so as we've, we see in chapter 1, as we'll see throughout the rest of the book, uh, salvation belongs to the Lord. There is no one person or people or country that are better or more deserving than any other. God simply saves uh, out of his goodness and loving kindness. He saves each one of us, uh, Jonah, sailor, disciple, uh, Tyrone Covenant churchgoer. He saves each one of us out of the depths and the miseries of our own sin. Not because he had to. Because he chose to. Because he loves us. Because he has freely done so. He saved each one of us with, with amazing grace, and now he places his call upon us to glorify and enjoy him forever. Isn't that, that's what our catechism says, right? We glorify and enjoy God forever. That is our whole duty. That is what we're called for. So will you respond to that call? And will you commit yourself to glorify and enjoy Jesus Christ, forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise you for your grace and mercy. You are a magnificent God, the, the uncreated one, as we sang. King of kings forevermore. And more than that, you have redeemed us and saved us. We praise you for your love, for your grace, and for your mercy. We pray that we would Know that and understand that more deeply and richly. And we pray that 
uh, your call of the gospel would uh, would resonate in our hearts, that you would engage us to, to fulfill that calling. And, and we pray that we would recognize it not as a not as a taxing, crushing thing, but as a, a light and a gentle burden, as Jesus said. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.